Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. I am so pleased that you have joined me, and I think you will be especially pleased when you find out who my guest is today. I am so excited to introduce Francis to all of you. Um, I stumbled upon Francis Tappan, and Francis, I will ask you to uh, make sure that I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but I stumbled upon him by Googling uh, something about comparing the United States to Europe. I was just curious about, I don't know, I can't even remember what, what I was curious about, but I, I came upon this article that he had written about things that, um, you know, kind of stereotypical things that Europeans think about America and then stereotypical things that Americans think about Europeans. And it was so fun and so interesting to read. And then that, of course, you know how it is when you Google things that, you know, you keep Googling, Googling, Googling. And pretty soon I was connecting with Francis and all of his adventures and I was just blown away. So to have him as my guest is truly an honor. And before I bring him on, just let me tell you a little bit about what this man has done. And you will understand why I'm so thrilled to talk with him this morning. Um, Francis's mother is from Chile. And his father is from France, but he was born in San Francisco. So he is a first-generation American, and um, he also has the advantage of being fluent in English, French, and Spanish, of course. And But he has, you know, picked up a few other languages. He has Italian, Portuguese, Arabic, and Russian under his belt a little bit. And um, he started out by earning a religion degree with honors from Amherst College. And then he went on to get his MBA, MBA from Harvard. And then after Harvard, he co-founded a robotic vision company in Silicon Valley. And then he decided to change his life forever. And he decided in 2001 that he would hike the Appalachian Trail. And so he sold what little he had and he hiked the 3,000 kilometer Appalachian Trail. And then after that, he did a little consulting for Hitachi, and then he visited all 25 countries in Eastern Europe. And uh, he consulted at Microsoft for a while, and then he decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And um, and I, I want to talk to him about that because I thought it was very interesting that he uh, decided to do it backwards. So, oh, what the heck? Let's just, Francis, let's just bring you on and get this conversation going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Renee. Thank you so much. Actually, it's, I'm impressed by your summary because most of the time when somebody tries to summarize uh, my life, uh, they'll get one or two facts wrong, but you pretty much nailed it every single time. Oh, so, very, good. Uh, very good. You, you did some good research. You know my life better than I do. <laughs> oh, there, yes. There, by the way, that lunch you had yet? No, not really. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious, you know, when you, when you say that you started out by earning a religion degree, what prompted you to go that direction in the very beginning? Well, I was personally interested in religions uh, just for myself and I wa- because I figured well if there's any decision in life that is the most important because our life let's say we live 80 90 years in if you if you're lucky um that is nothing compared to eternity and if there is an afterlife if there and and one of these religions that we have in the world is actually correct and true then this life is nothing. We need to focus on on the future life, and we need to follow the the religion that is the most uh, correct or the most accurate. And so I, I had just been exposed mainly to Christianity, like many of Americans are, and I want to know about the other religions. And so that's I figured there's no better way of doing that than doing it at the university, where you're exposed and you can do some real critical thinking and analysis. And so that's why I majored in religion to try to understand my uh, understand which faith, if any. Uh, really stood above the others, and also to understand people, because obviously uh, religion plays a, a massive role in most of the world, except for maybe Europe, where it's kind of fading a bit. But mm-hmm. overall, it's a very critical thing to understand. So that's why I kind of uh, majored in religion. Interesting. And then what were you thinking after you completed your studies? So you were doing it really for your own knowledge. You didn't really look at it as a career builder or a further occupation. Well, actually- 
Actually, there was a career builder aspect to it, actually, Renee, um, in the sense that I knew I wanted to go to business school later on. And I figured this is a way to distinguish my application from all the other economics majors, business majors that kind of, you know, uh, try to, to apply to all these business schools. So I figured that whoever's reading my application, they'll say, oh, this guy's a religion major. And all of a sudden it stands out amongst the crowd a bit. And as long as I fulfilled the other requirements, in other words, having enough classes in economics and, and having some internships. So I figured I could, I could have a more interesting application for business schools. Uh, so there was some strategic thinking as well. It wasn't purely uh, and kind of an introverted decision. Right. I was actually thinking about the impact it would have on my career going forward. Oh, and I and that's so interesting because that really says a lot about you from the standpoint that you are a strategic thinker and that you are always looking ahead. And that really goes well with your career that you have now, which is hiking and and then the books that you've written and the TV series. And there's, I mean, you definitely have a strategic way of going about planning your life, and that's that's impressive right there. Yeah, I think it's important that people have this long-term plan as well as short-term plans. Sometimes you have to have – and then start thinking about how am I actually going to accomplish that. So what I often ask people is what are you going to do if you had a billion dollars? And they say, oh, I will do this. Okay, well, now we once we know what you want to do, once you have a billion dollars, what are you going to do with your time? Let's go backwards and figure out how you're going to get there. And And so sometimes it might be a 10-year plan to get there. But at least we need to know the steps on how to get there. What's your ultimate, you know, it's like, what is the end? What is your end goal? And sometimes we, we, we're too much in the moment and we're too much just thinking day to day, day to day. And we're, we lose focus on our long-term vision and wh- how we want to feel like when we're on our deathbed. That to me is what's right. most important. And that's such a great message, especially for the young people that, you know, everyone talks about, um, media and, and, and kids getting on social media and how they don't understand that the things that they're doing now are going to impact their future careers or just their life in general. And so, you know, a perfect example is what you've done and how what you did, you know, 15 years ago and how that's allowing you to do what you're doing now. And uh, what a great message. Uh, you've got a lot of great messages all wrapped up in your in your adventures. So so when you when you decided that you wanted to leave the the you know the business that you had built and the experiences you had had in an office and behind a computer, why did you choose hiking? Was that something that you did on the weekends or something that you had enjoyed in a small uh, you know, in a small way, and you just wanted to take it further, or where did the hiking part come in? Yeah, it's weird. Um, a lot of people are surprised that I didn't even start hiking until I was 30 years old. It's a bit late, and I got into it just. I was at the time I was dating a girl, and she and she had been hiking a lot uh, as a in her youth, I guess. And I, uh, she and I decided, well, let's go out for some a day hike. And then after a day hike, we said, hey, you know, that would be fun, but wouldn't it be cool to overnight it. And so we, we did first some car camping and then we did overnights. And, we, and then I just got hooked. I just realized, I mean, I've always been fairly athletic in my life, but I, I think it was a good uh, combination of introspection. You have some time, you know, this time out that we have, especially today in today's world, we're getting bombarded with so many different things. It's great to disconnect. And, and it's, and it's unfortunate nowadays that some people still can't disconnect in the wilderness because they, they, they can't avoid taking their cell phone because maybe their cell phone has their GPS on it. So they want to take that, mm-hmm. but then they get distracted. They want to tweet about the, the beautiful vista that they have. And, but for me, it's it's a time I think that we all need to have as human beings to just have a little time out and, and time to and to reflect because that's sometimes where our most productive thinking is done. Yeah, exactly. And you're you're right. It's one of those things where, you know, in that little little thing the size of a, a slice of bread that you have in your hand, you know, you have your GPS, you have your camera, you have your, you know, tools that you need maybe to complete your hike, but there is that distraction of being able to you know, tweet out something or get on Facebook or whatever. But I know that um, there's there's a little bit of a uh, downtime. I, my my family and I went camping this last weekend, and we all had our our cell phones with us. And I I um I had taken my grandson's cell phone away from him, so we wanted to make sure the children weren't playing Minecraft or whatever. But there is there is something about being outside where I really did use it as a camera. 
you know, I really did use it as a communication just in between families. But the, the desire to get on Facebook every second kind of went away. So hopefully people that are out there in nature with you find the same thing. that They start out tweeting and taking pictures of everything. But after a while, you really just kind of get into into the nature and what you're in. So why did you choose the Appalachian Trail as your first hike? Um, it's actually interesting. We Our first hike was going to be the Pacific Crest Trail, again, with the same girlfriend uh-huh. I was describing before that we started out hiking. We went to the Pacific Crest Trail, but she started having knee problems right before the, the trail. And so we decided to shift at last second to the Appalachian Trail because it was about 25% shorter than the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's also uh-huh. a lot closer to civilization. So if for any reason she had a severe injury to the point where she couldn't barely walk out, at least we would know that we'd be much closer to civilization versus the Pacific Crest Trail. There's a lot of sections where where you're really pretty far out there, and, it's, and it would be very dangerous and inconvenient to try to get somebody out of there uh, by, you know, by a stretcher or whatever. So that's why we shifted at last minute to the Appalachian Trail, and I was happy, happy to do it. And by the way, one more thing I want to add about you know timeouts and breaks. I learned recently that Bill Gates actually takes two weeks a year where he just completely disconnects, and I, I was impressed by that for a guy as smart as he is, and he yeah. and, and as busy as he is, he has a million excuses of why he shouldn't disconnect, but yet. He feels that overall it's going to help his productivity and his output, I guess, to um, and his just development in general to take two weeks off a year and completely, completely disconnect and and really be hard to reach. And so if yeah. he's doing that, then perhaps we sh- we we, we, should, we should consider doing that as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I realize it's, for some people it's a big luxury, but uh, it's it's easier than you think. Yeah. Well, and it does reset your, you know, just like you reset your computer, it resets your mind to really analyze what's important and what's not important. And you did survive. And, and, you know, I remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the time when you went on vacation, people would have to say, well, they're gone. We won't be able to get a hold of them until they return. And how glorious that was, you know. So excellent advice. Excellent advice. Now, you did the Appalachian Trail, but then you turned around and walked back. Is that, is, is that the trail that you did it? Like you walked up there and then you turned around and walked back? That was the Continental Divide Trail. So there's basically okay. three trails in America that are considered the Triple Crown. And the the oldest trail is the Appalachian Trail. And, and you've and some people have seen the movie Walk in the Woods or read the book by Bill Bryson. And it's and basically that's a, the grandfather trail. Now it's a nice trail, beautiful trail, but it's a very social trail also. So it's, it, you have a lot of people that you get to meet, which can be a big benefit. Then you go to the Pacific Crest Trail, which is the, which is the second oldest trail. It's on the West Coast, goes through California, Oregon, and Washington. And that's 25% longer and, and it's far more of a wilderness hike. Finally, the youngest trail is the Continental Divide Trail, which goes through the Rocky Mountains and the Continental Divide. And that's the one, it was my last one to complete this triple crown, which a lot of, you know, hardcore hikers like to do. I started in Mexico, walked up to Canada, and then at that point, then I walked back. That had never been done before, and so that was kind of a kind of put me on the map, if you will, amongst uh, amongst the hardcore hiking community. And it was a great experience. As it took about seven months, it it was about six uh, five thousand six hundred miles, um, roughly doing thirty to uh, thirty to forty kilometers every day in that zone. Um, and it was it was rigorous, but it was you know one of these life changing moments as well. Wow. And I can't even imagine. I mean, there's so many things that you have to prepare for, um, and and to know. Did you use guides from people who had already hiked those trails to prepare for your hikes? I mean, the amount of food that you should bring, the amount of water that you should bring, and and I I know and my only hiking experience is you know walking around uh, a few of the very you know beautiful places here in the Pacific Northwest, but I've never had to hike for seven months and carry my food or so you have stops along the way where you can replenish what you need is that correct that's right yeah and so that part of it has to be planned out luckily if you start with the Appalachian Trail which wasn't our first choice for hiking but it turned out to be a good one in the sense that it is great for people who are just getting into long distance hiking because there's a lot of places where you can stop along the way to replenish there's a lot of places that get the creature comforts you can stay in hotels along the way there's they're not that far off the trail there's restaurants not that far off the trail um and so as a result uh there's there's a lot of places to escape on the other two trails, the Pacific Crest Trail and the, and the Continental Divide Trail, 
civilization is usually farther away. And as a result, you have to be a bit more prepared and a little bit more serious and a bit more planning done so that you figure out, okay, I can carry five days of food between these two points, uh, you know, this 120 miles. And let me uh, figure out. And then after that, I have to send another package. And then sometimes the, the, the towns or the villages are so remote in the mountains, they they have like a little like Seven Eleven store, but they don't have enough to really replenish your your yourself with good food. And so you prepare ahead of time these packages and send them to the local post office, general delivery, and then you can pick them up. And so it, it you're definitely right. It requires a bit of logistical planning to make it happen. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I know my my first kind of inkling to where I thought this is something I think I want to do someday was when I read the book Wild and yes. um you know that was that was something that made me even I didn't even know that the Pacific Crest Trail existed that's my hiking experience so reading that book made me want to look further into hiking and uh especially now I'm I'm where I'm at the age where you know I used to run and that's kind of something I don't know for some reason I don't want to do it anymore and uh, so I I'm really really excited to maybe start hiking so you're you're going to be somebody I'm going to be watching a lot well let's Francis let's take a little short break and then when we come back I want to talk about your um your, your hike your own hike and the hidden europe and all of the wonderful things that you've produced and your tv series that you have coming up and just everything i just want everyone to be able to watch you so let's take a break and we'll come back with francis tappen Welcome back to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com. Here's Renee Steelman. Hi, everyone. Hi, thanks for joining me today on Heaven Sent and Bent. I'm Renee Steelman, your host. And as my guest today, I have Francis Tappan, and he is an amazing host hike master. He's the author of Hike Your Own Hike and The Hidden Europe. He, from 2013 to 2017, he is right now in the process of visiting all 54 African countries. And he's producing a TV series called The Unseen Africa. And you can get online and download his first episode of The Unseen Africa, which is Morocco. Is that correct, Francis? That's right. Yeah, and it's, it's 44 an, minutes long without commercials. Oh my gosh. And I just saw a little snippet of it. And was this the part where you were showing the, um, ant bites and the horribleness of this hike that you were on? Was that Morocco? Uh, no, that actually was in Liberia. Uh, what happened oh, was gosh. a, I was going up to, I'm trying to go to the tallest mountain of every African country. There's 54 countries, so it's 54 mountains. And the tallest mountain in Liberia is probably in feet, I think, I don't know, maybe 4,000 feet or so, maybe 5,000, I'm not sure. But bottom line is, uh, on the way up, uh, we had to hack through a machete to get to the top. And my ba- my guide, all of a sudden, I turned around one moment and he abandoned me. He was no longer there. Oh. Um, oh. And he left me there. Uh, but on the way up, I was getting, because we we're chopping through with the machete, I was getting these little ants that kind of like to eat and they eat by your, they, they, they bite you all over your feet, all over your body. And so I was covered oh. with ant bites by the end of the Gosh. hike. It was terrible. And I had slept, spent two nights out in the wilderness, uh, alone without any kind of tarp or tent or anything like that. It was, uh, it was a challenging situation. Fortunately, it didn't rain during those two days, those two nights. And also it wasn't horribly cold. It was cold, but it wasn't uh, terribly cold. So luckily I, I got through that. Now, did you not have a tent and a sleeping bag because your guide had had those things and he took off? No, we, it was just supposed to be a day hike, and so that was uh, oh. the that was the intent. Because the guide told me, uh, you know, I asked him how long is this hike going to take. He says, you know, three to five hours, something like that. And so I said, oh. great. So we're leaving at yeah. nine o'clock in the morning. We'd be back by the end of the day. But right. in the end, he was telling me that that was just to get to a certain part of the mountain, not to the actual summit. <gasps> and so when I decided to push on. Uh, he didn't want to go and he kind of resisted. And I was like, come on, we, I'm paying you to go to the top. I didn't pay you to take me halfway up the mountain. And yeah. so at, at one point he's like, I'm tired. I want to go home. I'm, I'm, and I said like, listen, we got to go to the top. And he said, I really want to go home. And, and at one point he didn't even tell me I'm leaving Francis. I'm leaving now and you're <laughs> going to be by yourself. He just took off. 
And uh, he left me. And unfortunately, I thought it was going to be easy to get back because I figured, well, we've hacked this kind of narrow passageway with our machete, so we should be able to easily find my way back home. But unfortunately, it turned out to be kind of like a labyrinth, and I totally got lost. And <gasps> it was quite uh, challenging to get down. But anyway, it happened. Oh and those gosh. are those those terrible moments in travel, Renee, turn out uh-huh. to be the things that we all love to talk about later on. <laughs> yes, yes, you're so right. You're so right. I mean, my children kind of did the backpacking through Europe, stay in a hostel type thing, and and that's what they talk about. They talk about the uh, the time their backpack was stolen, and and the time yeah. that you know they ordered something they didn't know what it was, and they were hungry, and they kept ordering these. They wanted to you know be amongst the people, so they kept ordering this the different cuisine, and it was always something that they're like, oh no, what did I order? I'm so hungry. And you're <laughs> right; those are the things that they remember the most. So um, so your goal is to wander all 193 countries of the world and and to to learn from all of them and i love what you said in one of your videos where you said that you actually run into more people that are kind and helpful and uh generous than you do grouchy grumpy people that's right and, yeah and i think so that's sometimes when that. we watch the news yeah when we watch the news we have a tendency to think that oh my god people in iraq and afghanistan are you know or syria it's all a disaster there and and they're probably really mean spirited people all over the place in africa oh my god it's all everybody's starving and and having problems but in the end when you actually go to these places that sound so scary on the news they actually are incredibly tame and actually quite welcoming and the people because nobody goes to Burkina Faso or, or people are not used to going to Mali or to Mauritania, that the people, when they, when you actually get there, they're so excited to see a visitor, somebody from far away coming to their country. They welcome you with open arms. They want to feed you. They want to like they, – they become these fabulous ambassadors for their country. And so the amount of people that are actually out there who actually want to rob you or, or, or are just upset or just uh, are racist against you or whatever – it's very few. And so that's the, the lesson I try to c- convey to people because a lot of us are afraid. We're afraid to travel. And so we go to these tame places like Paris and London, which are great. And, and I have nothing against that. But I, I want to encourage people to expand their travel horizons because that's where we really grow as individuals. Right. And I love that you are encouraging people to go to Africa because I think with the, you know, the recent Ebola thing and, and the, 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 like you say, the things we see on the news as far as how unsafe Africa is and that I don't know that I, I can imagine that probably tourism is down right now. Um, but you have some wonderful, wonderful things to say and tell everyone like where you're at right now. Right now I'm in Namibia, which is actually p- perhaps my favorite country I've seen so far. I've seen about 27 African countries, so about half of African countries. Um, almost all of them were in West and Central Africa. Uh, Namibia is slowly becoming discovered, of course. It's not, uh, it's not like South Africa or Morocco or Egypt yet, or Kenya or Tanzania, but it's, it's like the, the next level and, and it's trying to become a, an A-list place in Africa. And it certainly deserves it. Uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt have come here a couple of times. They, so that's kind of put Namibia on the map in a, in a, for some people. Um, but the bottom line is it's totally clean, safe. It's actually the capital has been voted the most, the cleanest capital in Africa and it's immaculate. Um, the, the, the roads are in excellent condition. Um, the infrastructure for tourism is fantastic. And so, uh, and the prices are reasonable. And so it's a, it's a fantastic country to go to. Uh, but there's also some gems that are a little bit less known all over West and, and, and Central Africa as well. And we have a tendency to, to worry about, like you said, things like Ebola uh, that scare us away when we realize that the threats of our, uh, the other threats that we might have are much greater and uh, that, that Ebola is not, not, is, is not the, the big issue that, uh, that we think it is. Africa is a huge place. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think people, people – if, if, imagine if some Europeans said, oh, there's a, a disease in Connecticut, so I'm not going to America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that's, exactly. that was the effect with Ebola. It was just this tiny little part of Africa that was being affected, and yet people were boycotting the entire continent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, exactly. And I, I remember when uh, years ago I used to work with a travel company here in the Portland area, and we had sister relationships with Japan. And so we had a group of students that were coming over, and they were scheduled to arrive, and the parents were calling the agency just up and they were just – 
scared to death because there were things going on in San Francisco and, you know, riots or something going on in California. And these kids were coming to Portland and, but they were terrified because on the news, they were hearing that these things were going on in America. And so they didn't know if their children would be safe. And it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. I, I certainly felt that way when you saw all of the, the news that was going on with the, the spread of the, you know, disease and whatnot. But now, and you have a lot to say about, um, people going on, um, okay, why can't I think of the word? Safari. Uh, you have some, some ideas about that. Yeah, as far as safaris, um, well, I mean, you definitely want to consider, I mean, one of the, I went to a great safari in Tanzania and, and of course it's a classic. It's the, it's the place to go in Africa. Uh, I went with AA Africa. It's called Augustine's Africa and they had this great, ex- amazing safari experience. But I also think that sometimes people overlook places like Gabon, uh, places, uh, like in West Africa near Niger and Benin, there's this, uh, great uh, national park that's shared between the two countries. And, uh, also in the Congo and the DRC, uh, there's also some, uh, fantastic safaris that you can go. So for those who are kind of, and, and oftentimes it's much cheaper, like people go to Rwanda, uh, to go see the gorillas and they might spend $800 to spend an hour with the gorillas when they could spend $100 to go see, you know, these gorillas in Gabon. So, I think again, I want to expand people's horizon and 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 think about other places to go on safaris uh, in Africa, not just the standard uh, places as well. Right, right. And now, and you're using guides a lot, which I think is really interesting. You talked at what, on one of your videos about, um, you know, having the luxury of going on a where people were you know carrying your things and had your place set up and and all of that. So talk about some of the the hikes that you've had. The beautiful, you know, experts that were guiding you along. Well, one of my, uh, I went with a, a company called Gain and, um, oof, I last, forgot the last name, <laughs> but, um, it's on my website. I, I listed, but basically it, we went to the tallest mountain of the DRC and Uganda, which is Mount Margarita or sometimes called uh, Mount Stanley. And it's the Renzori's mountain range, which is, uh, Mountains that have glaciers on them, and yet they're near the equator. So it's really surreal. You're at over 16,000 feet, um, and they have glaciers there. So it's pretty spectacular. Now, guides, yes, you always, I always have, often have guides with me, but it's not because I always want them. I, I love to hike by myself uh, often. Uh, but in Africa, sometimes they don't even want you to go up a 1,000-foot mountain by yourself. Uh, partially, it's because they want to help their own economy. They have a bunch right. of people who, who, who need jobs, and they're sitting around looking for an opportunity. And you can pay them $10 to go up to the top of the mountain, and then they're happy. They've, they've made some income, and, and, and you've gotten a guide. And oftentimes, they do actually save you some time because you might take the wrong trail or might the wrong path. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I use guides. Um, I, I also went with a, uh, a company out in uh, Kilimanjaro and did that again with a guided company and and it took about a, a week to go up to the top of of that uh, of that mountain as well uh, so guides are it's you have to think of sometimes Americans we hate having guides going up mountain by ourselves especially people who are doing long distance hike like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Continental Divide Trail but we have to sometimes remember that in Africa it's a different tradition and it's a an ability to to give uh, help and uh, give a little bit of employ- employment to the locals. Right, right. And I, I love that message too because um there's a I loved when my daughter was living in China and you watched the people who were employed to do different things in in her apartment complex and there were women out there that were wiping down the swings and taking care of the playground and everyone had an IE and and it was just a way to give everyone employment and i think we've we've we're we're such a do it yourself country that we're kind of missing the idea that asking for help or hiring people to help you in different ways helps you but it also helps them and i love that message that we need to you know i think doing it yourself sometimes is 
is, uh, I don't know, it kind of breeds narcissism. And I think we need to understand that having, helping other, helping other people and, and can be something that you can be helping yourself as, at the same time. So I love that. I love that message. So you have, uh, so you've come out with your first episode of the Unseen Africa. Tell us about Morocco. Yeah, Morocco, I spent three months there, and it's a, a popular tourist destination. One of the things that's nice about it, it's one of the few African countries where you don't need a visa uh, to arrive mm-hmm. there. You just get it on uh, – they give you automatically a three-month visa, no questions asked, which is very touristic friendly. Uh, by the way, uh, Senegal used to have that policy. Then they reversed it. Then they realized tourism went down the drain because nobody wanted to apply for a visa for Senegal, so then they – Reversed it once again. Now they're back to a visa-free entry, which is a good lesson to to learn for other African countries that still have visa systems that are complex and and, and difficult. But luckily, Morocco doesn't have that. Now, Morocco is fantastic just because of the variety it has. It has amazing cities just like Marrakesh and Fes, which are very well known. But it also has wilderness. So it has uh, the 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 high Atlas Mountains, which are these enormous mountain range, which you know twelve thirteen thousand meter twelve thirteen thousand foot peaks. Um, that uh, cross the entire country. So you can get snow in Morocco. You can be at the beach in Morocco on the same day. Um, and also it's a, it's, a, it's a place that's accustomed to tourists. And so that's good and bad. And sometimes it's a bit annoying because they always you know, can have this tendency to like, hey, give me some money or let me be your tour guide for the day and give me some money. That kind of stuff versus you won't find that, let's say, in Sierra Leone where they're not used to seeing tourists. So as a result, they just treat you as a normal human being and they're excited to see you and they don't sit there and beg you for money. Um, so that's one of the differences. Uh, but you can get away from that in Morocco if you go deep into Morocco, if you go deep into the Sahara. And that's what I love about Morocco. So much variety. You can be in the sand. You can be in, uh, of the Sahara. You could be at the top of a snowy mountain top. You can be by the beach. You can be in a big city. You can be eating a succulent meal. I mean, it's got so much variety in a relatively small area. So that's why I, I'm enthusiastic. And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to have that as the pilot episode for the TV show I'm trying to create. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So, and so when you are, um, so where's your, where's your next location? Where are you going after? Or while well, you're probably doing, uh, where you're at right now. Is that correct? Are you, videoing your TV yeah. series right now? Yeah, every every country I, I try to capture things that are typically not seen by the media. So we have these two images of Africa that are imprinted in our brains. Either the positive side, which is safaris and uh, primitive tribes who are dressed up in very exotic clothing and, and kind of makeup on and they dance around. Or you have the negative side about Africa, which is, you know, Ebola, pestilence and crime and, and, and wars and, and all that problem. So I'm trying to capture the 98% of Africa that we don't see. That's neither, you know, there's a lot of Africans who've never seen a lion in their life. There's a lot of Africans mm-hmm. who, who've never lived in a refugee camp. You know, 99% of Africans don't know any of that. And that's the kind of side of Africa that I want to capture. So I go to places, let's say Namibia is kind of in the middle where it's, it's transition country where it's getting to be kind of the A-list. Uh, but my next stop is going to be South Africa. And South Africa, South Africa is very well known. Cape Town, mm-hmm. Johannesburg, and of course the Kruger National Park. Everybody knows these places. So I try to focus on parts of South Africa that people don't normally know about, don't normally see. And also, it doesn't necessarily mean just sites and physical places, but it can also be cultural things like how are race relations in between uh, blacks and, and whites in South Africa ever since apartheid uh, went away 20 years ago? How are women treated in South Africa? Uh, what is How are their feelings about people in neighboring Zimbabwe? Do they get along? Do they like each other? Um, so all these things that may not normally be captured by the media. What about entrepreneurs in South Africa? What are they trying to do to our breakthrough products that might one day end up in our shores in America or in, in Europe? These are the kind of questions that I try to think about and try to capture so that we get a more complex view of Africa and not such a simple, uh, simplistic view of Africa and then realize it's a nuanced continent that has a, an incredible variety. I want to capture some of that variety. That's excellent. And I love I what I love about that I think the most is you're so right. I mean, if we centered on even just in the United States, if we centered on Chicago, Washington DC, you know, Boston, all of the areas where there's a lot of crime and a lot of things that are going on, but to get off the beaten trail to, you know, 
to drive to see the largest ball of string where you really see the people and you find out how happy everyone is, how safe everyone is, how there's places where people still leave their doors unlocked and, and, and really kind of find out how people are really living. And I think that's so important because we do have this vision of Africa. We do think that every, I say that's a huge continent. So to think that every single person born in Africa is starving, um, is just naive. And, but I think that's what we're fed. And, and it helps, it definitely helps with foundations that are raising money for certain causes, you know, uh, to keep that image out there. But obviously there are very happy families going about their daily life very, very, very happy and content. Yes. And I love that you're bringing that. Yeah, I love that you're letting us see that and and opening up that world a little bit and and like what you say, what can that do for our relationship with those those people and that country? Right. No, and and a lot of people don't also realize that in the last ten years, that uh, half of the top twenty countries, the fastest growing economies, half of them were in Africa in in all the, in the entire world. So there's a lot of business opportunities, a lot of you know, a lot of things that are happening. Africa's changing faster than almost any other continent on the planet, even faster than China is changing. Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. Well let's talk a little bit about um your food. And and you know from what from where you started out as a child, your mother was from Chile and your father is from France. So that must have been an interesting um cuisine going on in your home. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you've had to change your diet and what you grew up eating and what you are now eating and how you even prepare for your hikes as far as your nutrition goes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so basically I started, my mom had a Latin American kind of bent in her cooking naturally and she did all the cooking. My dad didn't really know how to boil water. But basically (laughs) the rest of us uh, we we enjoyed my mom's food, but her food kind of evolved. It it started off, you know, traditional like a meat and chicken and fish and that kind of stuff. But as we became teenagers, it started more and more vegetables started making it onto the plate, and it's becoming less of a focus of having meat on there. And eventually, I went to college, and it was in college that I, uh, you know, we had these um, cafeterias where it's basically all you can eat in a tremendous variety. And it was there where I became a vegetarian, not a very serious <gasps> vegetarian. A very t- Have you heard the term, uh, Renee, of freegan? No, I haven't. Not a vegan, but a freegan. Yeah, no, I haven't heard that so, term. Okay, so a freegan, it's a kind of a funny term. It's basically you're a vegan unless the food is free, and then you eat anything. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so basically, a freegan, what they do is that, like, and that's basically what I was. I basically was a vegan, not vegan, but I, I, I began as a vegetarian. But if I go to somebody's house, or if I'm traveling, and... uh then I would just eat anything. So if somebody's house is offering me food, I wouldn't turn down, you know, their beef steak. Uh, but right. when it came to me, when I went to a restaurant, I would always order vegetarian. When I was at the cafeteria, I'd always pick vegetarian stuff. But if uh, somebody said, oh, I can't finish this chicken, I can't eat anymore, and yet I was still hungry, I'd finish the chicken because I'm not affecting the supply and demand of chicken by finishing off his leftovers, which he already ordered. Um, so that was kind of a pragmatic vegetarian or whatever you want to call it or a freegan as some people call it. Um, right. And so that's I've been basically like that ever since. And the other kind of uh, rule that I – and I became more vegan as I as I lived in San Francisco and I started discovering you know, a lot of soy products started coming out, so soy cheese and, and uh, soy ice cream, that kind of stuff, these these substitutes came out that made it much easier to become a vegan, especially in places like San Francisco where there's a, a variety of, of, of that offered. And so, but when I travel, I think it's kind of a sin to go to Japan and not have sushi. And right. I think it's it's crazy to go to Argentina and not have a beef steak. I mean, it's just this, these are their national cuisines. I'm not saying you should eat it every day, but have it once just to try it because it's so part of their culture. It's like going to America and not having a hamburger or going to Italy and not having a pizza. Well, you could have a vegetarian pizza, but you see what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I had my so doctor. That's kind of- no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so that's basically, I have this kind of a flexible, 
uh, I have vegetarian vegan tendencies, but, and so for example, when I get into a new country like Ghana, I'll go ahead and try the local cuisine in Ghana. And it's usually meat or fish or that kind of stuff that's thrown in, non-vegetarian stuff. But then after I've tried most of their plates that are their traditional plates, then I go back to my, veg- my vegetarian habits. I'll order beans and rice and whatever. So that's kind of my philosophy. And, uh, my mom has since then become very vegetarian focused, uh, not a hundred percent, but, uh, definitely focused, uh, pushed over to that. And there was a time also where I kind of got into raw foodism, where I, uh, just started thinking about, you know, maybe I should cook this, this broccoli less, or maybe I should, you know, make it a little bit more raw, or maybe I should have, instead of cooking the celery, just eat it raw. And so more and more stuff. Again, I'm not a hundred percent in any of these things. But having tendencies toward vegetarianism, tendencies toward veganism, tendencies toward raw foodism. And I think the more you go toward those things, then the better off you do. But for a lot of people, I think when they're picking diets, this all or nothing kind of thing makes them collapse. And so by giving a little bit of flexibility, you're more likely to to follow a healthier uh, diet rather than trying to be all dogmatic and totally stringent and it's either all or nothing. And I think that's a healthy, right. a healthier way for some people to approach it. Right, exactly. And I do think that it, it sets you up for disaster, like you say, being, mm-hmm. being, you know, that strict on things. And I, I like what you're saying about, I totally believe that, that, and I don't remember whether it was your article or someone else's article that I read that really talked about the gratefulness of going to someone's home and, Eating the food that's been prepared for you and, and not making a big deal out of whether there's cheese or meat or something like that, but accepting that food as a gift and being grateful for it and, and looking at food like that. And, and like you say, going to different countries, trying something that's their, their cuisine, their culture, enjoying it, uh, learning from it and then converting back to, you know, what you normally would eat. That's, I think when people talk about eating in moderation, I don't think people in America really know what moderation is, but I think <laughs> your, your idea uh, exactly is, is, you know, eating in moderation where you take advantage of where you're at. And, you know, I know my, my, I was going to say earlier, my doctor who is also a plant-based eater, but he said he, every year he goes fishing with his father. Um, it's a tradition in their family. And he said, when I'm at the coast, um, if I didn't eat fish, I would probably starve to death. And so, and I know even visiting France, I remember going, okay, I can only eat so many baguettes with lettuce because <clears throat> we were with a tour group and, you know, every, everyone else was getting a ham and cheese sandwich or whatever. Um, but there weren't a lot of vegan options that I could find on this tour. And, um, you know, bread was becoming a staple for me until finally one time it was like, I'll have the fish. Thank you very much. I'm starving. <laughs> you know, I have to eat something else besides bread. So I love yep. that. So when you're, when you're preparing your food for your, for your hikes, do you think, uh, you're probably thinking high caloric rather than necessarily vegan or vegetarian or, or omnivore. What are you, what are you thinking when you're pl- planning for your hikes? No, I mean, high caloric is important, but it has to be high nutrition too. So if I want high caloric, then I would just stuff my bag with Snickers bars. And that would be the <laughs> right. lightest, lightest Which food and highest caloric calorie. It sounds great, yeah. but then it gets old for a while. Yeah. It actually happened to me on the Continental Divide Trail where I, I went to a store and the only thing they had, I thought it had, it was going to be a well-stocked store and the only thing they had was chocolate bars. And so I oh. bought like 50 chocolate bars and that's what I survived on the next few days. And really it gets old. So <laughs> not recommended. <laughs> yeah. But basically, yeah. um, I, uh, when you're going for a long distance hike, a lot of times people get enamored with this idea that they can eat anything and still lose weight. And it's true. Um, men and women who hike these long distance trails, they hike the Appalachian Trail, they can really, they're, they're, they lose a tremendous amount of weight. Men lose more weight as a percentage than women do. Um, women tend to retain it a bit more, but they, even women lose a, a, a decent amount of weight as well on these long distance trails. But a lot of times people say, well, my God, I can finish a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and not, and still lose weight. How great is this? But that's yeah. not healthy, especially when you're, tr- I mean, it'd be different if somehow you were like miraculously just losing weight like that, but you're asking your body to do what it's never done before, hike 12 hours a day. And you're, you're pushing your body to these new limits. So what does your body need? It needs nutrition in order to do such an extraordinary feat. To do extraordinary feat, you need extraordinary nutrition. And so 
you have to focus on both calories as well as nutrition. And so most of the time that translates into a fairly high carb diet, um, because, uh, you're doing long distance and that's what your body needs. Um, but of course you need fat and you need protein as well. And so, and I do do vegetarian the whole way through on these long distance hikes. And so, uh, it's definitely possible to do it. You definitely have enough strength to do it. I focus on a lot of pastas and a lot of uh, soup mixes to mix together and, and, uh, energy bars and, and, uh, nuts and trail mix. Uh, these are things that, that go over well. And then in the morning can be granola and dehydrated soy milk or powdered soy milk. I love that. I love that you said that, you know, when you're doing the most strenuous part of your life, you're vegetarian versus, like yeah. you say, when you're going out for an enjoyable, you know, um, communal type dinner, then you might indulge in something that's, that everyone else is doing. But when you're really out for a survival type activity, you're primarily vegetarian. I think that's amazing. That's glorious. Yeah, a lot of people, this is, there's this big myth that we have often in America, and and, and also it exists in Africa a lot. But you know, I, I want real food, you know, not this plant stuff, you know. And we don't we forget that you know, plant stuff, potatoes and pasta, and 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 is 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 an incredible amount of energy that, it, and it's a long lasting energy that that can really propel you for a long way. And so a lot of times people think that the only real energy comes from meat or beef or chicken or something like that, but it's not true. It's that's right. a fallacy. And there's a lot of Olympians. Who are who are vegetarians and they do quite well and they win gold medals, right? Exactly. And I also think it's a, a really important to point out that when you're on your hikes, you know, you're not taking time out of your hike. Like you're saying, you're you're hiking 12 hours a day. You're not taking time to find a bunny, skin it, roast it. You know, <laughs> um, that's just not not practical. And when you get back to your camp, you need to rest. You need to take care of your uh, your clothing and things like that. So again, you're not shooting a boar. You know, and, you know, and eating it. And so you're, you're right. It's like really even for practicality as well as the energy that you need, you need to have a high plant-based diet and, and also including, you know, and that means grains and fruits and vegetables and, uh, and nuts. And exactly, exactly what you said. I think that's yeah. so and, important and, and that it's, you and share it's, that. And it's whole grains. Yeah, it's whole grains too. I mean, I think it, it's important that the problem sometimes when you go to certain places that they only have refined uh, carbohydrates stuff, you know, like white bread and that kind of stuff, white pasta, which is unfortunate. You don't, but that's one of the reasons why ahead of time I prepackage corn pasta or spinach pasta or, um, uh, or put whole grain, uh, I look for whole grain bread, uh, whole wheat bread, that kind of stuff to, to to make sure that those carbs are healthy carbs. Not all carbs right. are bad. Right, exactly. I love that you also pointed out that even if you're going to walk the Pacific Crest Trail, ladies, the guys with you are going to lose weight and you're not and just get over it because it's such a <laughs> – it's so hard, you know, as women. With my, I know my husband, you know, I, he's not a vegan at all. But because of my influence, he is eating a lot. I mean, he – actually brought home all of the makings of a spinach salad the other day. And he was so excited. He was like a little boy that was going to show, you know, his mom this good thing that he made at school. And he's like, look, I'm going to make this for you. It has golden raisins in it and spinach and, and, uh, cranberries. And he was so excited because he had had this salad at a restaurant. And so, you know, he is actually starting to eat more, you know, more fruits and vegetables. And so it's, you know, it's, it's been a transition, but it's definitely, uh, like you say, I, I really, I really get discouraged when I start hearing people say, Oh, I can't eat fruit. It makes me fat. I'm like fruit makes you fat are you crazy i mean how do these things get into people's heads it's amazing and and from what you know telling us that what you do is based on whole grains and and whole fruits and vegetables is just so important i'm so glad you shared that with us so you're going to be in africa until 2017 and then where are you going well, it's possible that I may be here until 2018 because I want to, I don't really want to leave the continent until I finish my book about, you know, about the unseen Europe. And so I might stay here for 2018. Then I'll go back to America for probably about a year, let's say, to do promotion of the book and the TV show and the, and the documentary and that kind of stuff and do some talks and, 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 and do a tour, which any author has to do to promote their sure. work. And then I'll right. come back. Then I'm going to go to the Middle East if all goes well. I mean, right now, I would oh. go to the Middle East right now, even though it's a bit unstable. 
But if in 2018, 2019, it's worse than today, then I'll think about skipping it and going to my second plan, which is Asia. So the Middle East and Asia are my two next sections. I want to do the Middle East first because it's a little bit more tricky and harder than Asia, uh, especially East Asia. So I, uh, that's, I want to go to about 25 Middle Eastern countries. And then after, and that's one of the reasons I'm working on becoming fluent in Arabic. And then after that will be Asia. And then after that, go a little bit further east into the Pacific Ocean and then see a bunch of the island nations of the Pacific Ocean, get a boat and go all around that. And maybe after that, do South America if I still have some energy and, and gumption to do that. Uh, so those are basically the plan roughly about a year in each place. Oh, that's amazing. Well, tell everyone how they can follow you, how they can get your newsletter, and and, and just how they can connect with you. Well, one easy way is africa54.com. So there's 54 African countries. So you just go there. You'll land onto my website. You'll land inside the website, in fact, effectively. Um, and you'll be able to f- uh, find all the links to Facebook, to Twitter, to uh, YouTube, and to find out also um, my email list uh, to sign up for that as well. Uh, I don't send out a whole lot of email, maybe once every couple of months, but anyway, it's it's it's, an, it's a good way to stay in touch. So that's the best way to go, africa54.com. Okay, and then that way they can sign up for the newsletter, they can follow your adventures in Africa, and they can get connected to, you have a wonderful TEDx uh, talk. That was really, really interesting, yeah. so they can find that. And so that was, well, I am so thrilled that I was able to speak with you and that I happened just, maybe it was a serendipity thing to come upon your article. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk about it because I love how you talked about how, you know, Europeans compare Americans, why, why, why we don't speak another language and how small some of their little countries mm-hmm. are. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's so important because sometimes you'll hear that on the news. They'll say, you know, the number of, uh, deaths in Europe, you know, were three, and in America, it was, is, you know, or Japan only had three deaths, and America had. It's like, well, Japan's the size of California, so let's talk about that. You know, let's not yeah. compare these yeah. two countries. That was a, a really. I, I think it's. I, I think it's smaller. It's about the size of Montana, although they have half the <laughs> population of America in the size of Montana. But it's. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's true. I agree with you that uh, th- if anybody wants to find that article, just search for. Defending American Ignorance. A lot of people find the, uh, the site just by looking under American Ignorance, uh, and they'll find it because it's on the first page of Google. But if you want to find it for sure, just look for Defending American Ignorance. And basically, okay. uh, the conclusion for those who are curious, I say yes. Americans are ignorant a whole lot about a lot of things, but uh, Europeans are not that far behind us. And there's a reason for why we're a bit ignorant about certain things, and a lot of it has to do with geography. But it's a controversial article, but I think some people will get something out of it, and at least it'll stir the debate. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. I know it's bedtime for you, so thank you so much. Have a wonderful night's sleep, and I hope to talk with you again. And please, when you get back to the States and you start your book tour, uh, you have to come to Portland. Of course, you have to come to Portland. So let me know when you're heading, heading my direction. Fantastic. Renee, it's been an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. How do you say goodbye in in uh, in African? Well, it depends on what part of the country you're in. How would you say goodbye? Yeah, in? There's, there's, oh, au revoir, uh, au revoir, no, French. Au revoir. That would be there. French. Which about half the African countries say au revoir. That's uh, at least when when they're speaking the the their common tongue, which is French, in in half the countries. So au revoir. Exactly. Au revoir. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Au revoir. Okay. Bye bye. Oh, that was so great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. I just have had a wonderful hour. I hope you have as well. Please remember to get on Africa54.com, um, hook up with Francis, and follow his adventures um, all over the world. And please join me next week on Heaven Sent and Bent, 10 a.m., Monday mornings, Pacific Standard Time. Have a great week. Bye-bye.